sports are very reactionary in the sense of when something happens, oh, now let's create this standard <laughs> to say that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work on DEI or, or or mental abuse or whatever the case may be. I believe that the athletes today who are also trying to leverage their own platforms and, and using their playing skills to build businesses of their own are now saying enough is enough and the sport justice movement, as I call it, is here to stay. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Are you familiar with the name Chris Jackson? The name sounds like a common combination, like Matt Smith or Steve Jones, likely to be a teacher at the high school in your hometown or a marketing executive at your company. But there is nothing common about the basketball prodigy formerly known as Chris Jackson. Raised in poverty in Mississippi and suffering from Tourette's syndrome that went undiagnosed until he was 17, Jackson overcame all of this to be named Mr. Basketball in Mississippi twice, which led to a McDonald's All-American game, an LSU, and the NBA. In his freshman year at LSU, he scored 48 points in one game, and then 53 points, and then 55 points. To put that in perspective, when LSU played Arkansas at the end of January this year, the whole team combined to score 40 points. Jackson earned Freshman of the Year, Southeastern Conference Player of the Year, and First Team All-American by averaging over 30 points per game as a freshman. He was electric. He was Iverson before Iverson. He was smooth. He was fast. He could really do it all. After two years at LSU, he declared for the 1990 draft and was taken number three overall by the Denver Nuggets. By 1993, Jackson had converted to Islam and changed his name to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Abdul-Raouf wanted to focus on ways to improve the plight of black communities. March 10th, 1996, the Denver Nuggets played a regular season game against the New Jersey Nets. During the playing of the national anthem, Abdul-Raouf decided to sit. He said he felt the American flag was a, quote, symbol of tyranny and oppression. Even hearing this may make some of you uncomfortable, but I implore you to listen with an open mind because this is history. Abdul Rauf explained that American customs were not consistent with his Islamic faith. Regarding U.S. oppression, Abdul Rauf said, this country has a long history of that. I don't think you can argue the facts. You can't be for God and for oppression. It's clear in the Quran, Islam is the only way. I don't criticize those who stand, so don't criticize me for sitting. I won't waver from my decision. Two days later, NBA Commissioner David Stern suspended Abdul Rauf indefinitely. He eventually came to an agreement with the league that he would stand for the anthem, but he could bow his head to pray. At the end of that season in 1996, the Nuggets would trade Abdul Rauf, and within two years, he was out of the NBA. Detractors of Abdul Rauf would send him death threats, and racial slurs were hurled towards local mosques. The main aftermath of this incident was that no other athlete would challenge a professional sports franchise, let alone a sports league, for years to come. Before Cap, there was Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. This topic that we're about to get into with Dr. Sean Anderson, author of the new book, The Black Athlete Revolt, is uncomfortable. It's difficult. It's gut-wrenching. It's all of those things, which is why we need to tell it, which is why we need to discuss it. We have to have these kind of conversations. So get uncomfortable with me. Sit in this moment. Listen to what has to be said. 
and appreciate the journey that others have had to go through. Because Dr. Sean Anderson and his book, The Black Athlete Revolt, is really, really eye-opening. So, join me in this discussion with Dr. Anderson about, about how the approach of black athletes has started to change over the last decade. I'll let him handle it. Here's Dr. Anderson. Dr. Sean Anderson, great to have you on the show today. So nice to meet you as well. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Brian. Uh, nice to be here. I'm looking forward to this. I've been really enjoying the process of reading your book, The Black Athlete Revolt. It's such an accomplishment. Congratulations on it. It's releasing and coming it. out on February 8th. I think it's such an accomplishment. Take us through this experience a little bit. Um, a little bit of background into the, the the thesis, the premise of the book, and then you know what this experience has been for you, like going into this process. Sure. So you know, I, I, I had an observation really over the last few years in um, understanding uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, we, we're now in the tenth year anniversary. Yeah. You know, moving towards that area to where that hashtag first came about on Twitter. And so I, I wanted to look at how, again, sport and society intersect, uh, particularly how um, social movements, uh, such as the Black Lives Matter movement, sort of kind of galvanized uh, this new set of athletes, uh, high profile athletes, um, into getting into, again, activism, uh, talks about social change and social reform. Uh, I looked at how uh, you know, I saw this <laughs> this meme on Twitter uh, that says that Twitter is is the cesspool of social media, right? So, so you're talking <laughs> about uh, the good, the bad, the ugly that's yep. really perpetuated on these platforms. And so, uh, for me, I was like, okay, um, we we know about sports and activism from yesteryear uh, in some ways, uh, but I wanted to take a look at how this new age technology. The, the massive amount of money that's involved in sport right. and how that all came about uh, pushing the envelope for activism here over the last decade. And where do we go from here? And so that was uh, the premise of the book. Um, I've, you know, I've written research articles on activism before on sports and social change, sports and social responsibility. So I thought that now was the time to, uh, move forward with uh, the, the understandings of this realm of activism today. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating read, and I, I I read it from the perspective of somebody who's been I've been working in the sports industry for twenty five years now. I've been a sports fan for even longer than that, and I feel like there's been different eras of this conversation. I think we'll dig into that a lot today because I think the way things were handled in the sixties and seventies is different than it was in the eighties and nineties, and then different again in the last ten to fifteen years. And right. there's a lot of changes that have happened there. But before we, we, before we dive that deep, you're an associate pro, uh, professor for organizational communication at Loyola Marymount. You've consulted with massive brands like Nike, ESPN, Major League Baseball, and their social responsibility initiatives. Uh-huh. You're out there making things happen. You're making changes in this world. You're being the, the, call, uh, the, the solution. Why was it important for you to dedicate time out of those efforts to put this time and effort into the book and to put it down on paper and to put it out there for more people to see. Why, why was that such an initiative you want to take on? You know, uh, we've been seeing this vitriol over um, really the, the course of the intersection of sport and politics, that athletes should shut up and dribble, 
you know, stick to sports or there's no place for politics in sports. And so for me, uh, I I thought it was necessary to point out the power of sport, you know, again, uh, to get us into these conversations on a larger uh, social issues. You know, again, in times past, we've seen that. But the recent, you know, uh, out aspects of police brutality, racial profiling yeah. um, that we see perpetuated in our 24 hour, 24 seven news cycle really got me to the point to say that, hey, we need to really consider uh, the platform of sport as this 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 true agent for social change. It's, it's, it's no longer a, a thing to where athletes are just saying that, you know, hey, we, we have to stop these issues using their platforms to talk about a myriad of things, but it was important to recognize that sports and how we talk about sports, how we use sports is, again, being utilized to bring about uh, conversations on policy reform and conversations on policy change. Um, For example, um, we all know about the United Nations, what the United Nations stands for over the last few years. They created their their sustainable development goals, uh, which are a set of global goals to which they, you know, want to um, try to help eradicate various human rights issues such as uh, poverty, education and equity, diversity, equity and inclusion. And a few years ago, uh, they designated sports as one of those platforms to be able to do that. Yeah. And so uh, in culmination. I was like, okay, it is time again to put sport at the forefront, not to say that we shouldn't involve sport in politics because it's been there. It's been there for for longer than people think. And so um, that really kind of set me aside for a couple of years and said, okay, let me write about this and and let's, let's bring this to the forefront and let's try to make some change happen. How are you feeling as you get closer to release date? Is there nervousness is there excitement like what's that emotional kind of roller coaster you must be riding as you get close to this going out and being a reality for the world to digest and I, I have to imagine there's a certain sense of vulnerability from it too because there's so much effort and time that goes into a project like this yeah. and people are going to judge people are going to have commentary people are going to have you know questions uh, how, how are you feeling right now as you get so close to this date you know the roller coaster is, is definitely that um, it's 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 part exciting because again I've been doing this work for over a decade. Yeah, teaching, researching about it. I teach race, culture, and sport class. Um, at least my students are excited about it, you know. But again, <laughs> <laughs> we 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 like you mentioned, you know, it's 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 a world where when you talk about DEI, police brutality, equity, yeah. all of those things, it's met with a lot of love and a lot of hate. Right. And so um, on the one end, you know, I I feel good about the fact that, you know, it took a lot of time and effort to put the research in to write this a lot of 430 in the morning to 9 a.m. writing sessions (laughs) to to, to get this going. But like you say, um, once it was turned in and the publisher was like, okay, we're going to put this out on February 8th and had to drum up all of the promotion for it. There was a bit of. I guess you you don't necessarily have to say nervousness, but 
eager anticipation as yeah. to will this actually get us to, you know, talk about things that we really need to change in our society? How much vitriol would I receive? Because, you know, I expect that too. Yeah. But overall, it, it is it is very exciting uh, because of the amount of, of work and time that was put into it. I hope there's a lot of pride too, because you should, I mean, you should feel that because it's really an amazing piece of work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I was on your site and I was struck by one of your opening lines, you know, sports is a microcosm of society. It's a mm-hmm. catalyst for conversations about business, politics, racial injustice, environmental sustainability, and other pressing social issues, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Nelson Mandela, sport has the power to change the world. You know, it's one of those right. things I think so many of us that work in the sports industry and are empowered by the sports industry feel. We believe it. But I, I kind of look back over my own I kind of uh, involvement in the sports industry, that arc of, you know, it feels like there's a the lot of, long stretch of time between when Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali were being extremely vocal, and others, many others, were being right. extremely vocal for the need for change, and top athletes were using their voice. There was a long period of time where they were not. And yeah. I'm not trying to point fingers, but growing up for me in the 80s, Magic, Jordan, Carl Lewis, they weren't being politically active at all. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Dickerson, we can keep going. They weren't leveraging the power of their brand to make change. Now athletes are. In your view, what kind of what do you think led to this change? And what what do you think led to the silence that we saw more in the eighties and nineties? What what do you think was the the thread that kind of carries through all this? Because I think that's a it's a really interesting. Yeah. So you know we, we so take it back to the civil rights movement, right? Uh, I think one of the uh, before it became somewhat dormant, we know of the nineteen sixty eight you know Olympics protest where we got the famous Black Power Fist, right? Uh, yeah. uh, we saw that and. We saw the assassinations of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and, and all of those things kind of, you know, pushed the movement to the side. But then when we got into the 70s and 80s, it was the money, right? So it was the growth of sport. It was the growth of uh, television rights to broadcast yeah. these games. It was the era of the multi-million dollar athlete. I mean, to this day, I mean, we, we know about LeBron's legacy, but to this day, people are still making arguments about Jordan versus LeBron. Well, yep. Jordan was this global figure, probably, you know, one of the most important global figures of that time. And so uh, we had others, Charles Barkley, otherwise, and, and the others that you mentioned. But then there was this thing of uh, a, a common law sort of if you engage in protests, you know, we're going to ostracize you. We're going to yeah. toss you away. We, we, you know, you can you cannot represent our sport doing this. So you're either going to get paid or you're going to do what you're going to do and get out of our game. Yeah. And so, you know, unfortunately, a lot of rec- uh, a lot of athletes during that time sort of recognized that and probably were afraid to, to speak up on. Issues, You know, we know about the famous Charles Barkley, I'm not a role model, uh, Nike commercial, right? And in recent years, he tried to explain that, you know, I was just saying that, you know, okay, yes, I know people will see me on TV, but we also have to admire the doctors and lawyers and all of those people, you know, in our communities as well. And, And that's, you know, I get that. But 
they are not in the limelight <laughs> like right. a Charles Barkley or um, uh, a Michael Jordan. And then let's let's look into another thing as well. In 1984, when Los Angeles hosted the Olympics, it was the most commercially successful Olympic Games of all time, earning yeah. over $200 million in 84. So that's a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, that was this push, again, for capitalism and sport, uh, the push away from speaking out against certain social causes. That's not to say that there were a few athletes who did that, but what changed from that point, that dormancy, you know, was the fact that we've seen other social movements that have come about. When we had the recession uh, back in 2007, 2008, you know, we had Occupy Wall Street where people were saying enough is enough. Um, Of course, a few years after that, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. People coming against organizations and organizations having to, you know, put together PR plans to say, okay, we're sorry, we messed up. As opposed to 30 years ago, (laughs) they didn't have to do that. Social media, right? And so because of that, and because we live in a society now where if you as an organization do not support movements that are for people who are from marginalized backgrounds, you can lose your customer base. Yep. And so I believe that the athletes today who are also trying to leverage their own platforms and, and using their, their playing skills to build businesses of their own and yep. help their communities are now saying enough is enough. Um, we see uh, the power of unity on social media if we were to step out and talk about social causes. And so that's where we saw this sort of pattern develop here over the last 30 years and now we're again in that point in time to where the sport justice movement as i call it is here to stay yeah i think that power and leverage equation has shifted and and like you said the social media influence the ability of the athletes to own their own brand to do their own marketing to get their own message out there to be their own voice and not have to always rely on an ownership team or whatever it may be as, as given a lot of that power to their voice back. Yeah. I, I, one of the other premises that I really latched onto in your book was this concept of a, of a migration from protest to policy reform. Yeah. Um, policy reform, that phrase came up 21 times in your book, which I found very encouraging. I did the old control F because I'm like, I think this is an important theme. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I've interviewed a lot of people over the years with a background or influence in DE&I, in activism, yeah. in social good, and I'm always asking these questions because they all have a big heart for the subject, but so often we get into a, a protest type role versus a let's make real change through, through policy reform. Right. Explain that a little bit more of what you saw happen and why 2020 was such a massive shift for athletes going from that kind of protest phase to that policy reform phase. What was the catalyst there and why do you see that as being so important? Right. So, you know, here's the thing with that. I think what happened really uh, to kind of push that effort forward was the fact that athletes began to call out the organizations themselves to put the the proverbial money where your mouth is. You know, uh, we think about Anquan Bolden, Malcolm Jenkins, who, um, again, after Kaepernick was sort of long gone from uh, the 49ers organization, you know, prompted the Players Coalition and 
pushed the NFL to create this Inspire Change initiative. Now, we still have to determine how successful, <laughs> you know, that's right. been. Uh, but there was a recent article I saw, I think even yesterday, um, where, of course, the NFL committed over $90 million to that initiative, but they also just added another $15 million to it, you know? And I know most of those uh, grant fundings go to nonprofit organizations who are trying to build up their communities. But it was the holding the organizations accountable that sort of pushed that, that, that element of uh, societal change. We think about Nike again, for example, who kind of stayed away from a lot of uh, the political conversations. But when, when the world had had enough, you know, whether they used the, the platform for just a PR ploy or to be serious about the causes, we saw the Kaepernick commercial of, you know, again, being different, you know, helping society out. But athletes are also becoming curious. You know, they're reaching out to uh, a lot of organizations out here. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking with people from the Vera Institute, Social Justice in New York, and they were talking about how several professional athletes and coaches uh, come to them about talking about criminal justice reform. Yeah. Um, how do we build or how do we destroy that prison to pipeline uh, you know, yeah. concept and things like that? And so they are really pushing the envelope you know, in that offseason to, again, talk about certain issues. I think I forgot uh, his name. Oh, Chase, um, Chase Young. Chase Young, yeah. He, yeah, he um, was serving as a witness in the court case about uh, criminal justice reform. And so, you know, you have others, Justin Tuck, former New York Giants oh, yeah. uh, player who also worked with the Vera Institute. And so they are taking away that, that, that only brawn concept, right? And, and using their intelligence and, and to, to really push out these, these causes. Now, what I think should happen uh, moving forward, again, is the push to hold the NBA, the NFL, um, NHL, NASCAR, all of the MLB, you know, yeah. more accountable. And, you know, one thing that was for sure was that these leagues also donate to certain political parties, right? And so it's to keep pushing those organizations to you know, fight for the causes and, and again, put their money where their mouth is to create true change. But that's what we're seeing now. Um, yes, we're seeing the protests on the streets. We're seeing the call outs to these organizations, but we have to keep pressing that button to get things going. You, you mentioned a lot, of the, a lot of the big brands out there that are sports affiliated or otherwise, they're, they're opening their checkbooks a little bit more. They might be getting a little bit more involved. We've seen that happen over the last five years. I've read enough stories about, you know, Foot Locker is putting in $220 million here and this person and this team and this, this brand is doing this thing. That, and, and I always, my, I, maybe this is just too cynical of me, but I always say, is this authentic or is this PR? And, yeah. and, I, and I just, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? You're out there more than I am. Do you think it's, <laughs> do you think this is, you think this is positively motivated or this is, is this opportunistic? No, you know what? I think it's split. Uh, okay. I, I definitely think that it's very opportunistic <laughs> because, um, you know, this is, this is the wave of social movements, 
in our society. Yeah. And so, you know, I just look at these organizations and say, they, at any point in time, they're going to try to find a way to make a profit. Right. And again, that's where sports are very reactionary. Oh, yeah. In the sense of when something happens, oh, now let's create this standard <laughs> right. to say that we're going to we're going to we're going to work on DEI or, or, or mental abuse or whatever the case may be. Nothing there. And it's it's like watching a, a toddler with their spaghetti bowl and they just throw it down. Uh, it splashes on the wall and you just see some stuff stick, some fall. And yeah. so that's that's how they uh, operate. And so, of course, yes, it's opportunistic in the sense of, yeah, we want to be at the forefront of this so we don't get the court of public opinion. But where I think that there could be, again, some good from it is, again, if we push these organizations to build some type of standard, some type of measurement of success of the programs that they try to put out there, you know, um, that's a tall task. Um, That's a lot of the work that I do. You know, when I talk to a lot of uh, sport organizations, I ask a lot of questions. Okay, you did this. You've been doing this specific program in this community for 10 years. Uh, What has it done to improve this community? Oh, well, it gave exposure to kids and and, oh, okay, cool. But (laughs) there's still issues going on with scholarships. Right. the, like the water crisis in Flint, you know, that's another thing relative to stadium development and stuff, right? So, you know, I I think we're transitioning a little bit from the opportunistic um, platform that we see only because, again, athletes are challenging these, these companies to yeah. be better. Um, I have hope for it, but we shall see. Yeah, it's another place where the athletes can can leverage so much and say, you want me to be associated with you? It's also going to, you'll, you'll get me as long as you do these things too. You know, and I hope right. that's where some way, some way the athletes continue to leverage the power that they do have because they do. They have a yeah. lot of power through their they platform. Do. I actually think as much as I rail against social media in a lot of ways, that's, you, you said it, Twitter's accessible in some ways, but I think <laughs> in other ways, this is how we get mobilization. This is how people start to build up enough leverage yeah. to, to, to fight back in a way. So having a voice, having a platform is an important part of all of this. You know, I, I, I consider social media as a toolbox, right? You know, I got my toolbox in my garage right now. When I need it, I use it. When I don't, it's back on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> right. To, to, to try to avoid all of the, 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 the bad issues of it, right? Oh, so yeah. That's just the way I see it. Oh, my my life got happier in some ways when I took that kind of an attitude and being like, let's put that away for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it does serve a purpose. And it's something we have to pay attention to. Right. Uh, we're at an interesting time of year that I think dovetails really well into this conversation. This is the season. Every year, NFL coaches get fired. And then there's a whole bunch of interview processes. New ones get interviewed. New ones get hired. And everybody clutches their pearls over the Rooney rule. And you hear yeah. it every year. Every year. Oh, the Rooney rule is broken. Oh, this is bad. That's bad. This thing, that thing. I always get frustrated because I think the problem isn't the Rooney rule. It's the people that are enforcing it, the owners, the decision makers, et cetera. But that's just my own one person point of view. You're deeper into this. This leans into policy and mandates and things of that nature. But is that the solution? Is that broken? Is there a better way? Of course, there's always incremental changes that can be made, but... What's your take on this overall 
attempt to p- apply policy to decision-making at a level like NFL coaching? Yeah. So, you know, think about the Rooney rule. It's, 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 it's not forcing you to hire someone. It's just simply saying you have Talk to, to interview a minority candidate with yes. w- what you do with this interview. It's up to you. However you right. want to go with it beyond that. And so, you know, I, I the thing is, the Rooney rule is admirable in its attempt, if you yeah. want to say, but it is flawed, you know, because I think it does, again, go back to uh, the top of the chain. We're not talking about the commissioner. We're talking about the owners. Yeah, right? 100%. <laughs> Who I, I was, it was funny. I was listening to um, D. Maurice Smith talk about yeah. um it's, it's 32 owners, NFL specifically, who have no arbitrator. You know, they have full control of what they want to yep. do. Nobody questions it. They answer to no one. Right. Uh, you think about the Dallas Cowboys, who <laughs> I talk trash about all the time. So when I see people get online talking about them, it's, it's so funny um, about the lack of productivity that the franchises put out relative to trying to win a championship. However, they are the most highly valued team in the NFL. And that speaks volumes to its power. That speaks volumes to it's a good old boy system to how, you know, they try to control things and, and, and spin things to, you know, fit those owners' agendas. So I believe that as long as the owners are not fully held accountable for what it is that they let transpire, then the Rooney rule will continue to be flawed. You know, it's a, it's a top-down situation. And so, um, again, uh, we look at coaches like Mike Tomlin, who has, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who's never had a losing season. Yeah. But, you know, the NFL will catch a lot of flack if he was fired this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, even though, you know, they've, they've had a you know, pretty mediocre seasons, but again, not losing. And so again, that is the network of the owners, you know, um, the cover-ups of several issues like concussions. And I even was wondering what that DeMar Hamlin situation was going to uh, spark into uh, beyond, you know, his situation. And so it's it's a top-down issue if we can tackle that pun intended, yeah, you know, we can get to, I think some, some, some sort of success with the really rule. Yeah. I always go back to just my own little thought exercise of, okay, so people want to criticize the Rooney rule. What do they think would be happening if it didn't exist at all? Do you think there would be, I mean, like if, if there was no Rooney rule and owners weren't being yeah. forced to interview minority candidates, do you think they would of their own volition? You think they would be reaching out and talking and bringing in? No. So, no. I don't know. I, and I'm not trying to be so absolute. And I'm not saying Rudy Rule is perfect. I just don't think, I think a lot of the arguments against it tend to be frustration versus real points being made because uh, I just don't see, if you look at the alternative, if you reverse engineer it and say, if it didn't yeah. exist, what would this environment look like? I don't think it would be better, you know? No. And, and, you know, you think about it uh, back again, speaking on that recession, when we heard the term, these companies are too big to fail. 
Yeah. So they had to, you know, be bailed out. I would have to put the NFL uh, in that category, primarily because, again, over the last decade, the NFL has had a lot of issues. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the media. And, you know, you have people saying on one end, oh, I'm going to stop watching because of these protests. On the other end, I'm going to stop watching because you got rid of Kaepernick. Right. But we're back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to see All that gets said and ratings are still sale. unbelievable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, contracts it, it are still going up. Months. Ratings are exactly. huge. Yeah. I mean, I would love to sign that Patrick Mahomes uh, $500 million contract. I'm sure it has a lot of incentives, of course, but come on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that was just a couple of years after. Everybody said, oh, I'm just going to throw this sport away. And so, again, that's why I think the policy reform conversations are important because that's what we need to push to. Yeah, no, I agree. We we all say, I mean, it, it is a tough one, and I, I don't even know if it's a great question, but it's almost a pleading and, a, and a looking for insight a little bit. We yeah. all see, nobody's blind. I mean, everybody sees what a lot of the black athletes go through, racism, threats. We see the police brutality. We see gun violence. We see hatred. We see the Twitter vitriol. And sometimes I sit back and I and I wonder, and I have young kids and I'm always trying to teach them the right way to be and the right way to act and et cetera. Uh-huh. And you, sometimes you just sit back and you say, how? How do any of us make a lasting, meaningful, impactful change? Because it's clear things are broken in a lot of ways, but- yeah. What can we do? And I'm not even sure it's a fair question to ask you or anybody, but it still feels like there's, and I, trust me, I, I'm a I'm a mid-40s white guy. Like, the world is not difficult for me. So I'm not saying yeah. this is my problem, but it's a problem I feel like I should be a part of the solution on. But I always look back and say, what can we do? What, what, do, we, what do we do? How do we, how do we help? How do people mobilize? Like, what, what happens here? And what is that thing that can make impactful change? You know, I, I, I look at it this way. You know, let's take because it's a hot topic right now, DEI. Yeah. And so a lot of things can be included in that, uh, in having a fair shake at uh, getting a promotion to equal pay, to um, equal rights, all of those things, right? I, I, I think as a society, we need to move away from this concept that uh, just because we are pushing DEI, that doesn't mean that. I'm just going to hire the next black person just because they need to be in there and, right. and they're not qualified. Nobody's asking for that. At right. least, you know, uh, from the black community, it's like, let's just have an even playing field to where I can have this opportunity to, to earn this position. And if I don't earn it because the person is just simply better, they have better credentials, fine. But nobody's asking for a handout. Nobody's asking for, oh, just give me, give me, give me. It's just more so don't put this obstacle in place that's not there for other people in order for me to be, you know, just just to basically live. Yeah. You know, I, w- I would venture to say and, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone. So I guess I could just say uh, from a personal perspective that who wants to sit here and talk all day, every day about. Uh, getting racially profiled. Nobody wants to do that. You know, you want to just go out and live, enjoy your family, enjoy your life. And so um, I I, I think as a society, especially those who are against uh, social progress, is that um, we simply have to look at how can we listen to comprehend and not listen to destroy or tear down, you know, as to say, 
oh, the only reason why this person got this position is because he or she is black. No, you know, because they're very qualified people for these right. positions who deserve an opportunity. Yeah. And so if we as a society can actually sit and truly listen to folk, understand the situation, stop thinking that diversity, equity and inclusion, those types of things are a problem. We can make progress. Now, here's the thing. While we are opening the doors to 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 those those concepts and issues, it's not even a necessarily a, a DEI problem, particularly in the workplace, is more so retention at this point. Because, you know, organizations are saying, let me meet this quota so people can shut up. Yeah. <laughs> but then when that person gets into that spot, they have identity crisis because they're trying to fit into a, a space that they don't have a lot of commonality with. A lot of burnout happens. The cycle continues. Yeah. See, that's where we need to see that that change. Yeah, it's a holistic fix. It's not just one moment. It's not just quota hunting. It's not just making a singular decision. It's it's changing the way business operates, and it's a big problem. Yeah. It's a big it's a big problem that still needs a lot of work behind us. Um, yeah. I've always felt, we'll finish up with this. I know you've got other things going on today. I don't want to take all your time. I'm really appreciative of what you've given us. Your book, The Black Athlete yeah, Revolt, comes out February 8th. Uh, I've been had the pleasure of reading an advanced copy, and it's and it's brilliant. So I really suggest everybody listening that they go out and, and buy it. Um, we'll finish up with this. I've always felt like sports is kind of a, a lens into the future in some ways. Like it's a little microcosm, a little subculture, a little societal pop bubble that sometimes things get test it out in and then applies to the society at large. Um, you know, it ends up, it happens here and then it, then it grows out into the bigger world. Um, with that in mind, where do you think we'll be in the next 10 years on this topic? 10 years ago, like you said, BLM was just kind of getting started and it was just kind of getting some headway. There's been a lot of positive change over the last 10 years, still more to go. Where do you look ahead and project out and say, not only within the sports world, but in society at large, what kind of progress do you think we'll be, we'll be seeing? Do you think it'll be a more equitable and more policy reform and some things down those lines? I think we will see some, some policy reform. Uh, I think that with some cases, uh, we will begin to see ownership in sports shift a little bit. Um, you know, we may have go from uh, zero black owners in the NFL to two, yeah. <laughs> possibly. Um, but that's where it starts, right? In many ways to say, okay, I will, as an owner, and I will survey this land, and I will say, I'll let you make your millions and, and, and all of that and do those things, so long as you don't interrupt what I got going in my rule of this sport. You know, um, we think about LeBron James, um, you know, the pinnacle sports figure probably right now yeah. uh, globally who, you know, left Cleveland, came back. Dan Gilbert got mad. You know, LeBron came back. LeBron left again, but he's still there. Yeah. And he owns his team and he will own this team long beyond LeBron retiring. Yep. Right. And so that's where it starts. I, I see that in some ways, but I still think that it's, and again, it's not trying to say that 
like with the Black Lives Matter movement, that black lives are better than others. But it's to say, let's, you know, make this playing field equal. Um, I think we will see continued uh, representation with minority candidates and say Congress, you know, the Senate, you know, things like that, because a lot of these conversations in sport are also telling people in local communities to, you know, vote (laughs) and vote for the people who will fight for you. And so, you know, we saw that a lot with uh, Renee Montgomery, uh, WNBA, a fought against her owner, ended up coming back and owning the team, (laughs) you know, and, and is pushing uh, that that agenda. And so we'll see more of that. Uh, I personally think it'll take at least 20 to 30 years to see, for example, half the ownership yeah. become people of color. <laughs> yeah. But in the decades to come, those are some of the things that I, I think we'll see. Yeah. I mean, to your point on Dan Gilbert or any ownership, I mean, you've seen it happen. These, these legacy hand downs too. I mean, like you said, like, yes. LeBron will retire, Dan Gilbert will still be the owner, and then Dan Gilbert will hand it off to his kid, and then they'll hand it off to their kid, and it will just stay in the family. And it's hard to break right. into that cycle. It's hard to break that cycle. It's hard to get in there and yes. make real change. And that's the, I would imagine, the extremely frustrating part. But I think we all, uh, I can't say we all, but I think a lot of people have the hopes and vision of that you have and that you share and that that progress will keep being made. So... Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing more about the Black Athlete Revolt, which comes out again February 8th. Congratulations on the book, and, and I, I wish you all the greatest success. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Anderson. Oh, I appreciate it. This has been fun. Thank you to Dr. Anderson for coming on the show, sharing his history and background of the creation of this book, The Black Athlete Revolt. There's a lot of history in it. I, I got a advanced copy, got a chance to read it, learned a lot even though I came up during this era and worked in the sports industry. I hope that this progress continues. I think it's it's so healthy for our game, for our society, for our world. And I hope that the progress continues. The days of shut up and dribble have to be over. Players have to leverage their brand, their moment, their platform, and they're doing that. And I think that's really encouraging because that's what sets the stage for the next generation. Thank you to Dr. Anderson for coming on. Thank you all for listening. And I'll see you next week.